Staying Alive in Paragliding, a podcast series with your host, Steph Juncker from Cape Town, South Africa, the owner of Parapax Tandem Paragliding and a competition pilot of 23 years. Real podcasts for real pilots to learn from, to laugh at, and to enjoy the funny and crazy stories that go with it. And it gives me great pleasure in this podcast, staying alive, a wonderful moment with a Sachit Sankrani, who is in the little town of Bir in Himachal Pradesh in India. It's 2.30 in the afternoon for yourself. It's 11 a.m. here in South Africa. And I say welcome to a graphic designer who has a consulting business with 15 people as his main source of income. But that's not what we are really going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the craziness of paragliding in India. And we are going to talk about, uh, very briefly, the life school, the NGO that you have started there. And also something you've uh, expressed that you would like to mention is the house building project that you have done with Robin the Frenchman at the, a place called the 360 Degrees Place uh, in Himachal Pradesh. Good morning. Hi. Good morning, Steph. Uh, thanks for inviting me. It's nice to be a part of this uh, project with you. Absolutely. So great to have you on board and so nice to have the referral from Mike in uh, our mutual friend from Austria, uh, from Odyssey. Everybody would know Mike if they've ever been to Beard. What a crazy guy. Very good, very good. Anyway, <laughs> he has told me that you found a brilliant flying place in India. And uh, I would like to definitely squeeze a lot of nice information out of you. But let's get started. I would like to ask you a few brief questions. When did you start flying and what was your first glider? Okay, so I started flying in uh, 2005, uh, towards the end of the year. And um, yes, I've been flying ever since. Yeah? Since the first flight, I was completely addicted. And uh, I knew I'm, I was going to do this all my life, you know. So it was a great experience. I'm so uh, thankful to have found paragliding. Uh, it changed my life completely inside out. And um, yeah, the first glider uh, was a Dudek. Uh, it was a Dudek Manta. I think it's out of production now. But in those days, it was like a ENB wing. Quite a nasty wing, actually. <laughs> But I had fun. I had fun with that for a couple of years. Fantastic. Was that the worst glider that you've ever flown? Because my next question to you is, obviously, what is the best and the worst glider that you've ever flown? <laughs> I have to say, as a company, uh, seem to produce excellent gliders. They, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, they're Polish or uh, Czech, and uh, they are obviously affiliated more towards motor gliders. So what were the w worst and the best gliders? Uh, I, after that, I quickly moved to uh, Sigma, uh, which was in the C category. And uh, since then, I've been flying mostly C, C gliders, flown the Arctic, uh, and now I fly the Delta. Yeah, I, I like the feeling of uh, the Sigma. It's great. Uh, and I think I spent around uh, six years with that glider. You know, uh, I changed a couple of wings, but still Sigma. And I think uh, that would be my favorite ladder so far. 
um although i'm enjoying the delta now it's it's different and it's uh, it's it's smooth it's really nice but uh, the worst glider i have to say is the sp hornet 2 <laughs> this is a glider that mike uh, lent to me in gerlitzen he said try it it's very good fun you know and i uh, just uh, tried to pull a sat in it in the very first flight in gerlitzen and it went into like a twist and i had three riser twists and it was horrible it was a mess so <laughs> thankfully i got out of it uh, i managed to untwist myself and uh, still fly it you know oh i would have expected you to have thrown the reserve and uh, landed sploosh in the water at gallitzen uh, with everybody laughing at you <laughs> thankfully i've never been in the water you know <laughs> i've done some stuff over the lake but never once in the water but yeah this guy this glider i i did not like the handling i there's nothing good about it you know so there are such gliders i've known these things from the past my very first glider would have been the eagle saber uh, first proper glider i went uh, we had a south african manufacturer called fun to fly and after them uh after having one of them as my very, very first glider, which I was quite happy to pass on or throw away, or I can't even remember what I did with it. But the Eagle Sabre was my next um, kind of first proper glider uh, way back in the early uh, 2000s. And uh, I was also happy to see the back of that and see times evolve after that. So, yeah, yeah. that's amazing. Now I want to hear from you one of the funniest or craziest stories you have to tell us about either paragliding or India, please. <laughs> there are many, many, many stories, uh, but um, uh, yeah, in paragliding, um, this one incident in Italy comes to my mind, where we went to this beautiful site called uh, Cavallaria, uh, which is close to Torino. So we were a group of pilots, a Russian girl, um, our Italian friend Paolo, and Robin from France, and Rafi, me from India. So we went to fly together and uh, we had a great flight. We great thermic conditions. It was a thousand meters from the takeoff to the landing. And this site was special because once you take off, uh, the landing is quite far away. You know, you got to glide out of the ridge, um, use the ridge lift, and then you can reach the landing. So anyway, we had a great flight and uh, we landed and we thought, let's go back for the evening flight, you know, the sunset flight. So we went back on top and we all took off one by one. And uh, we started gliding uh, out. And then we realized that the lift is finished, you know, mm -hmm. and in fact, it was catabatic starting. So we all started to sink. <laughs> and that was a moment of truth for me, you know, <clears throat> because I was sure I'm not going to make it to the landing. Uh, I was flying uh, Eden, Macpara Eden, which is uh, really famous for its uh, glide ratio. I had to decide what to do in that moment. I knew I had about a minute's glide left, and I had to decide what to do. There was absolutely no emergency landing zones. It was just forests and some houses in between. I picked a nice big bushy tree uh, beside a house, which had a small park beside it. 
I thought if something happens, then uh, maybe I can get rescued, you know, at least there's a road. Those 60 seconds, there were so many thoughts running through my mind. It was pure adrenaline rush, you know. And then I chose this one tree and I went straight to it and I stalled it on the tree in the center and I just crashed into it, broke a couple of branches and then landed with a big thud on the ground, you know. Magically, I just stood up and there was not a scratch on me. And that was like unbelievable what happened, you know. The Italian family from the house came running and we could not understand each other at all because they didn't know English and I couldn't speak any Italian. I, my glider was stuck in the tree and then after about half an hour, my friends came, tried to uh, find me in the forest and I could hear them. So finally we met up, removed the glider from the tree. And then we went to rescue another friend, the Russian girl, whom we thought had crashed somewhere else, you know. We found her. Uh, she had landed in a small hole by the river and she was fine. And then finally we went to meet our uh, Italian friend who just managed to reach the landing with a tandem passenger, you know. He brushed his ass through trees and then just managed to make it. I, I noticed that, uh, and obviously hundreds or thousands of pilots around the world would obviously be able to re um, relate to such a story where thousands of thoughts are going through your mind. Uh, closest I've ever come to dying has been landing in the Socha River in, in Slovenia, a fast-flowing kayaking river. And the thoughts that went through my mind were absolutely ridiculous about how I was just about to die in two, three minutes. But right. what's amazing to me, and you've mentioned it twice, is that you remember that there's a Russian girl in the story, which is just fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was amazing because we tried to find her and we went through all these houses and fields and vineyards and language was such a big problem, you know, because we didn't even know how to describe this girl or this person to the locals. And uh, finally, we found out that the Italian word for a girl is ragazzo. So we couldn't ever imagine that language could be such a big barrier, you know, uh, when you fly in different countries and different cultures, you get exposed to all these little nitty gritties. It's uh, incredible. When we were children and we were in Italy for the first time and we were actually in a camper van and my mm -hmm. father, in his kind of trying to create independence to my brothers and I, sent us out to go and do a few very sh a simple shopping errand of um, buying some cheese, bread, and eggs. And I remember squatting down in front of the Italians going, bak, 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 bap, and showing something produced out of my <laughs> ass, and showing them that. And they were like, wovo. And I was like, wovo, yes, wovo, that's it, yes. That must be the word. I need some of them. Oh, no problem, come with me. It's <laughs> just like embarrassing. <laughs> that's something very similar to what happened to us. You know, we were trying to describe a girl with boobs and ass and they just didn't get it you know they just didn't get it what we're looking for this incident was also like intense and funny in a way because after that it kind of brought us closer together and uh, also made us realize a lot of things about paragliding you know uh, when we fly together and 
the decisions we take and the consequences that they have. So it was a, a nice incident that we all learned from. I think that's a very, very powerful what you've just said. Um, a lot of people are asking me in these podcasts to bring in some psychology, some headspace stuff, why we are thinking like we do in paragliding. And you have put it in a nutshell when you say the consequences, the 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 results of your actions, the lack of language, the bringing together of people, the necessity. And in this time of corona, it's actually a, a startlingly a similar situation, isn't it? Totally, Steph. I think there's a very uh, deep subject, you know, uh, sports psychology and uh, how people view uh, risk uh, versus reward and why some people are driven to do some crazy things, you know. It's a very, very interesting topic that I keep thinking about all the time, you know. And I surely think that um, our life, uh, the time that we spend in the air, like paragliding, it uh, surely influences the way we live our life on the ground, you know, with dealing with other people and family and love and business and everything. And the other way around also is true. The way we live on our life on the ground also reflects in our paragliding, in our time up in the air. You know, I think they go hand in hand and they influence each other in a big way, uh, more than we can imagine. Hundred percent. I value every single word that you're saying there. It's extremely powerful. Uh, such it, I think what you're saying there is ringing so true on so many levels with so many mm -hmm. people. Bloody mm -hmm. beautiful. I have to also have a silent little laugh when you say, and people are thinking of going out and doing all sorts of sports and dangerous things, and we go paragliding. And you said it as if paragliding is absolutely not dangerous, which <laughs> <laughs> if you face it and you know it, it actually is not, isn't it? It's not at all, Steph. It's not at all. In fact, the statistics are so scary, you know, because after uh, like now 15 years of paragliding, when I think about all my friends and all that we've done, um, I realize that more than half of them have had incidents and have broken themselves, you know, more than 50 percent. And that is a large number. That's uh, that's uh, insane. And um, also, yes, I've lost a few friends uh, who who died because of paragliding. Also, you know, makes us uh, step back and think uh, in terms of what can happen if if something goes wrong, which can so so easily happen in our sport. You know, it's like it takes a second to break yourself. You know. The longest I visited India, probably, I would guess, 10 or 12 years ago, my life is a bit of a blur. I went to just 26 countries in last year alone, in 2019. So I travel like an absolute hooligan. I travel all over the world like a madman. <laughs> so just tell me, uh, obviously, people have the idea that paragliding in India is an absolute mayhem, where people fly the oldest rubbish gliders. I know that Mike and my friend Wolfgang Dorfler export gliders from Europe uh, to India, and obviously the level would be increasing and getting better. How many pilots fly in India today? What kind of level are the pilots flying at, and what kind of safety standards exist today? I mean, obviously it's not um, people becoming tandem pilots uh, with two days of training anymore. 
<laughs> so it's a very funny question, Steph. So yeah, the scene has changed a lot uh, in India over the last decade or so. Um, it's true what you say uh, about the past um, in terms of flying uh, really old shitty gliders without training. But uh, things have dramatically changed since then. Um, India is changing very fast, you know. So now uh, there are around um, a thousand pilots in India. Uh, this is a number keeps changing uh, very quickly. Uh, but it's still a very small sport in India. It's a very niche sport. And uh, they're mostly like uh, less than five established flying sites um, where people fly on a regular basis. And uh, many, many, many more sites. Wherever there are mountains, there's possibility to fly, you know. So there have been many new sites that have been discovered recently and people trying to fly in uh, different states, uh, which is opening up uh, possibilities. Uh, but primarily, uh, there are two places that stand out in India, which is uh, Bir in Himachal Pradesh and Kamshet in uh, Maharashtra which are the two biggest uh, flying sites uh, where commercial activities take place regularly, you know. The people have evolved, uh, the pilots, the schools, they've reached a very good level in terms of uh, the skill set. You can say almost as good as European standards. Great thing is the weather is also amazing in India. It's far more predictable than Europe and more consistent. That gives us a big advantage, you know. Because uh, Kamshet uh, starts to fly in the month of October. It goes on all the way till the end of May. So, which is almost like seven to eight months of flying, which is incredible. Also, Beer in Himachal is one of the most famous flying sites around the world. It is absolutely beautiful it's incredible it's a massive playground for paragliders of all uh, levels um, most people who come here uh, they do their first uh, they do their highest and longest flights so altitude record and distance record you know it's that uh, easy easy in the sense that uh, if you know what you're doing you can surely push your limits here you know there are people who have flown five to 6,000 meters on a regular basis. You know, every season they do that. Uh, and just these possibilities that you can do this distance and this altitude and this wallbiv style flying, it makes this place very, very special. I mean, I want to just interrupt you for a moment and just say, I mean, India, 500 languages, the second most populous country in the world with 1.1 billion people. You completely surprise me when you say there's only a thousand pilots, hundreds and hundreds of undeveloped sites, um, probably the most beautiful place to fly. Many people ask me of the hundred, hundreds and hundreds of places that you've flown, Steph, where is the most beautiful place you've ever flown? It's got to be India. I mean, it's got to be. <laughs> When Wolfgang and Mike talk to me, when I see the Odyssey film, when I see people um, very easily, and for the folks who don't know it, it's completely and easily possible to go to India and not land in the valley for 10 days. 
Um, the uh, Odyssey was 48 odd days with a group of seven or eight guys, which if you ask me is completely crazy. I would only do a Volbev with two or three guys, maximum four. But um, you're fantastic. I mean, so you've developed something called a 360-degree um, lodge. Is that right? Tell me about it. Not really, Steph. That's not true. Uh, 360 was already an existing uh, place. Uh, and we uh, landed up there. In fact, my first time there was with Mike. And uh, we did a BV there one night uh, with a bunch of uh, pilots. And it was so much fun. It's so beautiful, this place. So we kept going back there again and again. Um, it was uh, one of the top landing sites in this area. You know, there are many top landing sites along this ridge. So this is one such place. And it has a really special vibe because uh, you can see the tall uh, snow-capped mountains in the back, uh, the valley in the front. It's literally a 360-degree view from there, you know. So we liked this place so much that we decided to uh, do something there, you know. So a bunch of us uh, got together and we uh, planned to build a house there, uh, which is now there. It exists. It's done. <laughs> and so what would that be an average night to stay there? I mean, excuse me, uh, sounding ignorant because I haven't been in India in 10 years, but it, I mean, India was by far the cheapest place I had ever traveled. I mean, it was just unbelievably cheap. And uh, on a side note, in Iran uh, two years ago, I couldn't believe how cheap it was. Uh, the uh, um, Iranian currency is completely devaluated. The Americans have done their fantastic party trick of giving them one um, up the stinkenpuppen. And I can tell you, it's really, really not nice what's going on in Iran. But the most fantastic, amazing people and so, so cheap is India today as cheap as it was back then how much is a night at your lodge how much is an average meal do you eat for a dollar a us dollar so uh, yes uh, india is changing and it's uh, things are getting more expensive that is true however as compared to the west it is still uh, very reasonable uh, the dollar rate is around 75 rupees right now uh, 1 dollar for 75 rupees but uh, India works uh, slightly differently, Steph, because um, it depends on how you want to travel, you know. If you want to travel cheap, then there are cheap options available. Uh, if you want to spend a lot of money and live comfortably and travel comfortably, that is also possible in India. So that is what has changed in terms of um, the prices. In cities, for example, uh, you can uh, spend as much money as you'd spend anywhere else in the West. Uh, but in villages like uh, beer, uh, it's cheaper. And uh, if you plan to travel on a budget, it's unbelievable how much you value you get for your money. I'm finding myself, uh, finding my head moving from side to side in the Indian style. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I was thinking of all of these fantastic times I've had there. I mean, I was staying for 15 US dollars a night in a four-star hotel in Delhi at the time. And in bed, the accommodation uh, in Manali, up by the hot springs there, a little um, up closer to the Wards the Rotsang Pass. You all know it, that very hot spring there right up on the hill. And um, absolutely brilliantly hosted for one US dollar a night. I mean, uh, what does a... What does a 
what is the bottom, not the bottom of the barrel, not the crappest, fittest place you can stay in, but what would an accommodation with your own room that's clean uh, indeed cost you tonight? So approximately you get a room for 500 rupees a night um, these days. Uh, it's increasing uh, slowly, slowly over the years, um, 800, 1000. But um, yes, you can still get a good deal for 500, a nice clean uh, double bedroom with an attached toilet, hot water shower, everything. So en suite for under five US dollars a night. So that sounds quite okay to me. So many, many reasons to go visit India, folks. Reason for people to visit uh, India, uh, such as give me that. Wow. So India is very, very large and has so many things to offer, you know, in terms of uh, culture, in terms of landscape, in terms of food, uh, music, art. It's uh, fantastic to travel within India and discover all of this. Uh, but uh, from a flying perspective, um, what makes this place special is, uh, like I was saying earlier, the weather, um, as well as the sheer possibilities in Himachal, you know, in Bir. This playground is so huge that uh, there is always more to discover and you can always push yourself uh, more and more. It's a never ending journey, you know. And most people who come here, they get addicted to this place because of this reason. You have the most special flights. Uh, the thermals are so smooth. There's so many places to top land here, uh, do uh, bivouac uh, with your friends. You can even play with clouds, uh, go in and out of uh, nice puffy cumulus clouds. So there's so much to offer. Uh, in south also, there are some very, very beautiful flying sites. Uh, you can fly by the coast in Goa. Panchkani has uh, some incredible XC potential with really trippy landscape. Kamshet is a beginner's uh, site, but uh, the consistency in the weather is amazing. Uh, you can fly every single day. Once the west wind starts in February, you can start, uh, fly every single day for three hours. There is so, no doubt about this, and no one can argue that you are flying in one of the best places in the world. Herminio uh, Cordido seems to tell me that in uh, Valle de Bravo, they have 300 days a year. Obviously, <laughs> you guys don't fly in the monsoon season, if I, if I stand to be corrected. But... Right. Um, you seem to have uh, in your season, which we are speaking of, which is October into May. And I made the terrible mis the mistake of trying to fly in June and landing in Dharamsala with a cloud above me. You would never <laughs> believe exactly that thing was when I spiraled down. I landed and five minutes later, the meanest, ugliest gust front came through. But I had to fly once from Bir to Dharamsala. So I did it and uh, it was a bloody scary landing. I can tell you that much, yeah. <laughs> Anything you'd like to say, um, tell us, uh, um, obviously, I would like to speak about the people in India, because one of the most beautiful things, and I want to say something that's really marked me for my life, I say that the people in India are considering each other like family, even if you're a complete stranger. So people, I was very sick, um, obviously, like many people, I got the Delhi Delhi. And uh, my whole body wanted to escape out of my bum as quick as possible. Um, but um, I was actually walking in the streets and looking extremely pale and half fainting. 
And a family came over to me and they took me in and they said, no, you're coming with us now and we're going to look after you. And I realized that the love for the fellow human being is not lost in India. Your comments on that, please. Uh, so, yes, that's true, uh, Steph. Uh, it's a very uh, connected uh, culture here. Families are tightly knit together. And uh, also in um, uh, our culture, there's this saying called Atithi Devo Bhava. Uh, it's a Sanskrit term uh, which uh, literally translates to uh, uh, guest is God. Guest is equivalent to God. So. There was always this culture of, uh, um, you know, hosting people and uh, treating them well. Uh, although that is changing, like I was saying, very quickly. India is changing very quickly. And of course, uh, there are all kinds of people. Uh, it's a very large population. Uh, but it's nice to see that uh, this still exists, uh, this feeling, you know. And this yeah, is yeah. also something very special about uh, India, which I really like. Absolutely. I mean, what can't you love about India? A lot of people in the West are kind of very um, afraid to go to India. They think they're going to be walking over dead bodies and um, having hundreds and thousands of beggars in their face at every single moment. And uh, that there's absolutely nothing clean in India. And, and they are so mistaken. And I would like you to agree with me, uh, if you would. It, this is not the case, is it? No, not at all, Steph, not at all. So just to put things into perspective, uh, India is a large population, 1.3 billion or so. And if you actually see how it works, they, there are about uh, 400 million uh, educated Indians, uh, which mostly live in cities. And the rest, uh, 800 million are uh, not so educated. Although they do have basic education, they are not um, white-collared or they don't have skilled jobs, you know. So a lot of these people are uh, living in rural India and farming and stuff like that. So it gives, um, it gives you an interesting perspective because 400 million is the size of the American population, you know. So we already have 400 million uh, educated consuming class uh, that uh, comprises urban India, you know. So it's urban India is not so different from the rest of the world in terms of uh, culture and exposure to technology and stuff like that. But uh, the real India lies in, 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 in the heartland, you know in uh, the rural places and that's where you'll get exposed to the really beautiful uh, stuff in terms of meeting nice lovely people who uh, who who still have these certain values you know that we speak of you have said it to me because it's so true if you want to meet the most beautiful people who are looking at you with the most honest genuine smile they will share their last bread and rice and dal with you. Bread, forget it, but rice and dal with you right there. And then you are going to India. You can go and top land, never visit the valley for a whole week, up and down. Um, you have enough hosts, so more than happy to show you around. Um, contact me. I will happily put you in touch. I'm sure, I'm sure uh, Sajit would absolutely welcome anybody who would like to help with his life school, his NGO, 
anybody who would like to get involved in any way or simply just to visit and have a meal with the man. Folks, uh, this has been absolutely wonderful. I would like you, if you would like to, um, just in conclusion, say anything, please do. And if you don't have something that you specifically want to say, what do you see happening in the world after Corona? What would you like to see? So it's a very interesting time, Steph. Uh, most of the world is locked down and it gives people uh, time to stop uh, and think, you know, about uh, reflect in terms of what, their priorities are in life. So I've seen different people reacting in different ways. And I think it's, uh, it's really good. It's healthy for everybody. And uh, people are becoming more aware of uh, what really matters to them. And also kind of filtering out the nonsense, you know, from their lives. A lot so, of nonsense. Yeah. There's been so much noise, there's been so much crap, there's been so much unnecessary. And I think that this, and I would like to uh, uh, also give everyone a message of encouragement to do the right thing at this time, to focus on the positive opportunities. Totally, totally. And I think when we come out of this, we will all be more aware human beings and more connected, more uh, sensitive to each other, you know. And I hope, I hope we uh, become, come out of this better, you know, uh, and not, Let's go, hope so. not go back to the world we were before this incident. Absolutely brilliant chatting with you, Sachit Sankrani from India, and we're going to wrap it up right now on Staying Alive in Paragliding. Thank you very much for joining the show. Thank you, Steph. Pleasure is all mine.